Hello and welcome to Essential Work, exploring the past, present, and future of jobs. This podcast is brought to you by the Battle of Homestead Foundation. This is Nathan Ruggles, and thank you so much for listening. Every week, we bring you stories, perspectives, and interviews. It's all about what people on the job are facing, what they have faced, and what they will be facing in the future, what we all are facing. We discuss the struggles of workers, whether it's people through history, people today, or looking to tomorrow. This is our third episode. In our feature interview, we engage in a discussion about the struggles of food service workers in a conversation with the nonprofit organization, the Restaurant Opportunities Center, Pennsylvania and in Pittsburgh, and their work fighting to improve wages and working conditions. After that, we talk about upcoming free online events hosted by the Battle of Homestead Foundation. Communication manager Larry McCullough will give us the latest. As always, we'll close out with a song selection inspired by our theme this episode, that of the restaurant worker. Now, please check out the Battle of Homestead Foundation at battleofhomestead.org. It's a group of folks who are dedicated to preserving and interpreting history, particularly that around the Battle of Homestead, which occurred in 1892, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where this podcast is produced. They also promote the idea of a people's history, a worker's history, and labor history. Please consider a donation while you're on the website. It supports all their good work and this podcast. Now, I'd like to announce this podcast is now on Google Podcasts. That's in addition to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. You can see all those platforms along with all of our past episodes, uh, two of them so far, in addition to this one at EssentialWorkPodcast.org. Now, speaking of Apple Podcasts, please take a moment, head over there, give us that five-star rating that really helps us out. Share the episode on your favorite social media as well. Now, we go to the first part of my conversation with the Restaurant Opportunities Center here in Pittsburgh. We talk with organizer and former server Bobby Linskins and a local worker, a barista actually, who is a member of Rock, Abby Rideout. We talk about the mission, the current campaigns of Rock, the experiences of my guests and other workers in the industry, what they've been facing, what they are facing today under a pandemic, and their hopes for the future. It is my pleasure now to introduce our guests here on the program from the Restaurant Opportunity Centers, or Rock. I have Bobby Linskins. Bobby, thanks for joining us here in the podcast. Thank you for having me. And I also have uh, with us here, Abby Rideout. Abby, thank you as well for coming on. Happy to be here. Excellent. So Rock, Bobby, if you could first tell us, what is Rock? We are a national nonprofit that was founded after September 11th as a worker relief center for the workers who were left without a job after the Windows in the World restaurant was destroyed in the restaurant at the, the top of the World Trade Center, correct? Yes, 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 exactly. And uh, we were set up as a worker relief center, and we've kind of grown since then. And we're now in 10 different cities across the United States. And I hesitate to say 10 because we're always adding new chapters. And <laughs> Okay, so that could change tomorrow. Is that, is yes, that it? Yes, okay, yes. Okay, okay. Um, 
But yeah, so we are here to help restaurant workers with any issues they might be having if their employer isn't paying them properly. Sometimes workers might not be paid for hours that they worked. Sometimes their employer might be taking their tip, trying to make them pay for customer walkouts, different things like that. So the organization's definitely grown and it is the Pennsylvania chapter of, of Rock. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And the Pennsylvania chapter, the main office is located in Philadelphia. And then in Pittsburgh, I am the full-time organizer and we're doing a research study on the restaurant industry in Pittsburgh right now to try to identify the issues that are most affecting restaurant workers so that we can work broader on those issues, not with just workers who come to us, but through trying to pass legislation such as paid sick days that was recently passed in the city of Pittsburgh. And so now we're trying to pass that at the county level. We're also working with some partner organizations supporting things like paid family medical leave. Very good. Very good. But you have a serving background, right? And we, we'll get into that in just a moment. But yes. Abby, you're in Pittsburgh here as well, yes. correct? And you, you've been working as a barista most recently, correct? Yeah. I moved to Pittsburgh in 2015 and immediately after moving here, got my first job doing coffee in a cafe. I've been doing it ever since. I've worked for a variety of coffee shops and I've, I really, I feel like run the gamut of coffee in Pittsburgh. And then more recently, then since you've been here in Pittsburgh, you started getting involved with Rock, correct? Right. Bobby and I actually met a few years ago when a coffee shop that I was working for closed suddenly over holiday weekend. Okay. Got a text on Friday that we would not only be closed on Monday, but we would be closed permanently. And myself and the other employees were out of work. We were owed tips from the prior week. Management did not want to give us those tips and claimed that we had been stealing and that they needed those tips to cover the cost, which is legal, by the way. They, they said they needed your tips to cover their costs. Uh, they, they claimed that they needed to keep our tips to cover what we had stolen, but could not document anything. It, it was just an accusation and the tips that we were owed was exactly the same amount as what we had allegedly stolen. So and it it is illegal to withhold tips as payment or coverage for something else because sure. your employer isn't putting that money to you. Customers give you that money to you. So Bobby and I actually met for the first time a few years ago when I was dealing with that situation. So how did that resolve itself then at the end? This, uh, we... I remember us threatening some amount of legal action over it because it was actionable. We went with Bobby to the location and after that, they ended up handing it over, but not before threatening to call the cops on us. So, so, so wait, so there, you had a, a little group, how many of you went? It was three employees. It was a really small coffee shop. Okay. Okay. Kind of a side branch of a larger restaurant. 
Okay. So the three of us and Bobby went back to the coffee shop, talked to the manager, asked to get our belongings and our tips back. She tried to call security and the police on us for trespassing, which didn't really go anywhere because it was very hard to call sitting in a public space trespassing. And after a little bit of conversation and waiting around, we were given uh, our tips and our belongings back. Okay. After you made the case for it. So Bobby, at that point, you were employed by the Restaurant Opportunity Center here in Pittsburgh. Is that correct then? Yes, that's correct. And um, we had been sitting around for a little while waiting for the manager that we needed to speak to to come in. And once she came in, they were asking for their tips back. And that's when she had said that their drawer was short and that she was keeping it to replace the money that was missing out of the drawers. And at that point, I told her that that was illegal and that if she didn't give them their money, then we would be pursuing legal action. And she didn't give them their money at that point. But about a day later, they contacted them and told them that they would give them their money. Okay. So what do you feel was like the key moment or the key thing that convinced that manager to turn around and and hand over your tips being able to tell them what they're doing is illegal and pointing to where (laughs) yeah i would say i think that it was because they realized that you know these employees had an organization that was backing them up that what they were doing was illegal and you know They weren't going to get away with it, that there is an organization out there to help these workers. Because, I mean, honestly, what would most workers do without us? You're not going to find an attorney to fight for even $100 in tips. It's kind of not going to be worth their time. So we need to be able to go through other channels like, the Department of Labor or National Labor Relations Board and filing complaints and things like that. So, and Abby, now before that, before you got involved with Rock at that time, were you aware that it was illegal for, for the management just to take your tips like that? And your fellow workers, what did you, what did you think going in? <sighs> I remember us thinking that it had to be only for the reason that because prior to that job, I had worked in a union at the East End Food Co-op. I learned a little bit about this stuff. And one of the things that I learned is that theft is something that, especially in restaurant industry, if you're going to take action on that, it needs to be documented. And so there was no documentation. There was no write-up. There was no... Like at no point were we shown the math of what the accusation was. And so I I knew that that was a little bit suspect. And then also that tips are gifts from customers. And, but I remember us doing some looking around, just trying to figure out whether or not this was legal when we found Rock's website and contacted them and Bobby came and met us and got our story and went over what we could do and gave us the tools to say, no, this is illegal and here's how we fight it. So your kind of instinct or your inkling about what was illegal or not illegal was informed by both your experience as a union member 
at one location. And then Bobby also gave you additional information about what your rights are on the job. Right. And if I learned anything from my time working for a union and in the union that I did, it's the restaurants really rely on their workers not having the knowledge or the energy or the support to get things that they are legally entitled to. Restaurants rely on their workers being too tired and not knowing enough and not knowing the right people to not fight these things. Like Bobby said, no attorney is going to take a case for even a hundred dollars. So, and the restaurant workers and the restaurant owners know that. Right. Or you're too afraid of losing your job. You're too afraid of losing the income that you are making, which is another Thing that we have helped workers with as well. Tazadora, which Abby had, has also worked there very recently, we've had many issues with this coffee shop owner. They first came to my attention when two employees were fired after bringing up concerns at a staff meeting. The management and owners was telling them that they were losing so many thousands of dollars per month, and it was all the employees' fault because they weren't keeping the customers happy. They weren't working fast enough, etc. And so these staff said, hey, wait a minute, you guys have made all kinds of changes You've brought in more made-to-order items. There's more work for us to do now, but you haven't scheduled any extra staff. So, of course, the lines are getting longer and your customers are getting upset. Plus, you have managers who are giving them special prices and then they come in expecting that special price and we don't know anything about it. And they're like angry at us. So it's not all our fault. And there are some things that we need to talk about so that we can improve this work environment for us and for you to increase your profit. And instead, they decided to let these two staff members go. They said that it was due to customer complaints, but they did not produce any customer complaints. They did not tell these staff members what the customers even complained about. And, and how soon after this staff meeting where they brought up these issues, were they let go and told there's all these customer complaints? I want to say it was only like a couple of weeks, maybe even less, like a week. But pretty quickly afterwards, they were fired. And we helped the two employees. We filed unfair labor practices said that they were retaliated against for engaging in protected concerted activity. And the employees went through the National Labor Relations Board and they did win the case and they were awarded back pay. Well, very good. It's nice to hear that was at least a better resolution than what, unfortunately, I can imagine many workers face is that once they're shown the door, that they've lost their job, they've lost their potentially their livelihood, and they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. Right. It's great to hear that Rock is helping workers do something about it. But so many of these things you're talking about, you know, they've been going on for some time, right? And both of you have experience in that. So first of all, Abby, so when did you first get into 
the industry, the restaurant industry, working as a barista? So I worked in smaller cafes in the college town that I was living in, in St. Louis prior to 2015. When I moved here to Pittsburgh, I had the idea that I just wanted to learn how to make coffee and that that was what I wanted to do. Um, okay. Just a little bit of an impulsive thought, but then I stayed in the industry. Had, had you done that before or is just no, something that no, I, okay. I kind of just decided okay. that that was what I wanted to do. I had done all kinds of things when I lived in St. Louis. I had worked in a couple cafes in my college town. I had worked in a bike shop as a sometimes mechanic, sometimes salesperson. I had worked in a dog daycare. I had been a camp counselor, like I'd done all kinds of things and then moved to Pittsburgh and decided I wanted to learn how to make good coffee and ended up staying in the industry right up until COVID happened. And I was laid off because I ended up liking it so much. So your instinct was correct, apparently, that barista was something that you enjoyed to do. Yeah, it's it's really, really fun work if you've got the personality and the work ethic for it. Most baristas work by themselves or with a very limited staff. So you kind of have to be stocking, managing a register, doing customer service and have pseudo sommelier tasting skills um, to go with all of that. <laughs> Sure. I'm sure coffee connoisseurs out there would definitely agree with that, that, yeah, um, that those there, tasting skills are There important. are more flavor notes in coffee than there are in wine. Fun fact. So, you know, you, you have a lot of moving parts that you have to manage, but you really get to know people. You really get to be a part of people's lives. You get to meet people, or I have met so many people that I would have never met had I not been serving coffee. I, I love the industry. I love the job. It's unfortunate, but it has so many internal struggles because I, up until COVID happened, I was actually working in my neighborhood coffee shop, which is less than a block away from my house. You know, my customers were my neighbors and there was just such a beautiful sense of community and ability to actually serve my community in a very tangible material way. It's, it, it can be a beautiful place to be working. Well, it's wonderful to hear that that you found a, a calling, so to speak, a job that you really enjoy. But it's unfortunate to hear that you've had to encounter these different challenges. Now, you said you've worked at a couple different places. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you found in the workplace that either may have led you to switch to a new place or maybe move on or maybe something that led you to stay in one place because it was particularly good? Yeah. So in Pittsburgh, the joke kind of between baristas is that we all know each other. Even if we've never worked the same job at the same time, the web of people who are full-time baristas all know each other because it's sort of a merry-go-round. You go to a new coffee shop, you really like it, you get in the groove, it supports you. And then about two years into being at that location, you hit a paywall, you hit a scheduling wall, you realize that there is mismanagement or an owner who is MIA or is not listening to the concerns of the senior staff. And then they go to a new coffee shop and start the process over again. And the pretty average time that I've seen for this process is about two years. You will have, there are a handful of baristas I know in the industry who have been at their coffee shops for a decade or more, but those people are a minority compared to the people who play the merry-go-round game of like, 
okay, I've been here two years. Can I have a raise? I haven't had a raise the whole time I've worked here. And the owners will almost always say, no, and then starts the job hunt for something else. And, and in terms of hours, so do you find that baristas typically get the amount of hours that they want or the type of hours they want? No. Okay. And over time, even if you've dedicated even years to a place, do you find that that changes or it's pretty much uh, remains the same? So this is kind of like a structural problem with the coffee industry is a lot of places have you either single or double staffed at most. And so when it's only one or two people, it's very, very hard to do things like take breaks because you need both hands to be on deck. And one of the ways that the industry has found to get around this and to keep costs low is that you will almost never find a barista who works more than a seven hour shift. Almost always their shifts are between the range of anywhere from four to six and a half. There are some places, especially bigger franchises, where you'll find those closer to full-time shifts. But I was assistant managing a shop in downtown for, again, two years, where my sh- I worked five days a week for six hours. I never hit 40 hours working there. And when I would bring this up, it would get explained to me that there just wasn't room to let me work more, but then also would get... I I wouldn't get reprimanded, but I would get pushed around a little bit about the fact that I had another coffee job and the image would be affected if people saw me at multiple coffee shops working. And actually, when I was working for Tazadoro, their employee contracts has a non-compete clause where they don't want you to be working for another coffee shop. So correct me if I'm wrong. So on one hand, they're telling you, we're only going to give you so many hours. We're going to limit the number of hours you get. But on the other hand, they also don't want you to get additional hours somewhere else so you can make a living. They explicitly don't want you to do it in another coffee shop. (laughs) Yes, in another coffee shop. So you can have enough hours to like pay your rent, right? Yes. I've run into this problem several times where, you know, a coffee shop wants to have somebody, they don't want to pay them full-time hours, but they're also very threatened by the idea of that employee being seen serving coffee somewhere else too. Okay. And now Bobby, I'd like to get your perspective from your, your personal experience. Now, before you came to be an employee with Rock, you had a history of working in the restaurant industry, correct? Yes. Yes. Yes, I serve at a local diner style restaurant franchise that has many restaurants throughout the Pittsburgh area called Eaton Park. It's kind of similar to a Denny's. And how long did you work? Did you work exclusively there or how long did you work there before you started getting involved with Rock? I worked there for... A little under six years before I started getting involved with Rock. During my six years there, I had also picked up a second job at Pizza Hut and also another privately owned local restaurant called The River House. Okay. So why did you have to work two places? Why not just, why not just one? What was it about the work that led to that? Well, I remember 
wanting to work more hours at Eaton Park. I just wasn't making enough money to make ends meet and you could not work overtime. They didn't usually schedule you 40 hours, but they did allow you to work up to 40 hours if you were able to pick up shifts from other people. And so I went to my managers at Eaton Park and I asked them to make me straight night shift there. So then I was able to work at Pizza Hut during the day. When I stopped working at Pizza Hut and just was working at Eaton Park again for a while, I had a medical condition and my doctor said that I needed to put my foot up for a half hour every four hours. So all they all they needed to do was give me my break in the middle of my shift. And instead, my manager decided that he was going to cut me down to only two days a week and only schedule me for four-hour shifts. So I was suddenly only working eight hours a week. So because you wanted to just take a break because of a medical condition, they decided that, you know, we're just not going to have you work. Yeah, which uh, if I had been more aware of my rights at that time was them illegally retaliating against me because of a medical condition. And that definitely is something that's not okay. And they could have gotten in trouble for it if I had known. So you said if you had known. So at the time, you weren't aware of all your rights on the job. Correct. But there came to be a time where you did. Yeah. And so tell us how how you came to that time? How did you come to that to learn more? Well, actually just through getting involved with Rock is how I learned more. One day I was on Facebook and I saw a petition put out by an Eaton Park worker saying that servers deserved a full minimum wage with tips on top and that Eaton Park also didn't pay its back of house staff enough either that they should receive raises and higher hourly rates. And Eaton Park is expanding and making lots of money and they're growing. So they had it. So they should be giving it. And I agreed with the petition. I signed it. And about a week later, an assistant manager was in the pantry saying that anybody that signed that petition was going to get fired if they didn't unsign it and unlike it. And I didn't really know anything at that point, but I was just like, immediately, I was like, you cannot fire somebody for signing a petition. And they tried to tell me that because I had signed a paper about what I could and couldn't say online, that that was how they could fire people because of that. And I said, I don't care what I sign. You can't fire people for <laughs> signing a petition. I didn't know if I was right, but I was insisting that it just did not sound right to me. And then I got an email from an organizer at Rock and told them what was going on. And they came out and kind of did what I do for workers that reach out to me now. I came out and met with me and we talked and decided to file an unfair labor practice. 
And so we ended up winning the case. I didn't ask for any money because I hadn't actually been fired. So there was no back pay to go after or anything. But Eaton Park did have to post employee rights in the break room, uh, notice saying that they're not allowed to monitor our online activity and tell us what we are and aren't allowed to do. And they also had to revise their social media policy in their handbook because it was found to be illegal as well. And that will do it for the first part of my interview with Bobby Linskins and Abby Rideout from the Restaurant Opportunity Center Pittsburgh. Part two will be a bonus episode on this weekly podcast in which we talk about issues they and other workers face with wages and benefits and look at the particular challenges of food service employees in the midst of a pandemic. Next up on the podcast, upcoming online events and more along with our song selection of the week with Larry McCullough. And so it's uh, time for our closing segment here on the program. This is Nathan Ruggles here with you. And this is Larry McCullough. Larry has uh, double duties with the Battle of Homestead Foundation, both in, in communications and he's a music expert. We're going to close out this episode, as we always do, with a song inspired by the theme of this episode. And I can tell you, Larry, you made a great choice this time. I think people are going to really like hearing this one. But before we get to that, I'll need, need you to put your communications uh, manager hat on, Larry. So um, what can you tell us about what's coming up with the Battle of Homestead Foundation? We're going to have a uh, free Zoom panel. Uh, it's called Protecting Ourselves from the Plastics Invasion. It is uh, three members of the Allegheny County chapter of the Isaac Walton League, which is the nation's oldest conservation group, started in 1922. They're going to tell us uh, not just about the problem of plastics and how bad they can be when they're they're you know causing pollution, but really what we can do to sort of negate that in our own lives and remove the harmful effects. So it's not going to be a doom and gloom uh, presentation. It's going to be like, here's the problem and here's some solutions we can do in our own lives. You can get uh, tickets, the free tickets, by registering on Eventbrite for protecting ourselves from the plastics invasion. Excellent. And they can, if they go to the website, they can find a link to that. Exactly. That, right? Battle of Homestead uh, website, uh, get you right there too. Yeah, battlehomestead.org. And yeah, Isaac Walton League talking about solutions and not just problems. So exactly. really look forward to that. And we should mention to the individuals on that panel, one, Patty DeMarco is one of our hosts here on Essential Work. We're going to hear from her again here in a couple of weeks. And we also have Mike Stout as well, who is a longtime union organizer, a member of the Battle of Homestead Foundation. We're going to be interviewing him on the program coming up here in the coming weeks. But he's uh, not just an organizer. That's right. Mike is also a singer-songwriter and a great performing musician. And the next program after the Plastics program is going to be on Wednesday, October 14. And that is going to be a book talk with Mike Stout talking about his new book. It is called Homestead Steel Mill, The Final 10 Years. It was published early in the, the spring of this year, and it is everywhere. Obviously, Mike's book tour in person has been circumscribed a little bit, but he's been doing a lot of promotion for the book 
online October 14th. We're going to have him for an hour and a half talking about how this book evolved, what it meant during the time all these events were happening from, say, 1977 to 1987, which were very important here for not only the steel industry, but all of labor in Western Pennsylvania. And he's going to have performances recordings of his music and he's written hundreds of songs about labor and about essential work and he's going to be there actually to give his inside state of mind about how this book came to be and that's going to be very exciting october 14th excellent excellent and should mention that homestead that is an historic area the Battle of Homestead Foundation also mm-hmm. uh, named after it and that story while it is particular to the history of Pittsburgh and the steel industry here It is a story that really hits on common themes of the struggles of workers throughout history, going back through the era he talks about, but even through today and even even back farther and not just here, but across the country. Right. Mike, Mike really had the inside scoop. He, He really was he was employed by the steel mill, but he was very, very astute about what was going on. I mean, he show up at work every day and do the extra job of trying to figure out what was really happening inside the corporate structure. And this is all really told in this book. Unfortunately, a lot of things he thought was going to happen, the bad things did. Although a lot of folks tried to forestall them. And now today, all these years later, we're doing our best to try and you know make things better. Excellent. Excellent. So, and again, anyone can participate, right? Free event? Right. Absolutely. Just we'll have the Eventbrite link up soon. And speaking of uh, events, Charlie's Monday Marker, every Monday, we got a new one oh, coming yes. up. Absolutely. Dr. Charlie McAllister, every Monday, has a video, 10-minute video of a historic marker that has to do with labor and explains the history and the background behind this marker. That all really comes from a book that he and Howard Scott did called Labor History Sites in Allegheny County. It was published a few years ago. And there's something like 62 of those sites. We're up to episode 12. So we've got uh, quite a few more to go, but you can see it uh, again on uh, Battle Homestead Facebook page, Battle Homestead website, and the YouTube channel. Excellent. And these markers may be about sites here in Pittsburgh, but I don't think there's a city or state in the country (laughs) that doesn't have those historical markers sitting on the metal poles of the engraving, right? And we can see those paragraphs on those, but there's always a story behind them, right? Usually a lot of stories and there are a lot more than a couple paragraphs for sure. Yes, for sure. And Charlie is, he is a historian and he gives us all the details, the nitty gritty, you know, the story behind those markers. And so check that out on the YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And for all this, right, battleofhomestead.org, that's the website to head to. You know, you can keep track of all these upcoming events, social media links. I should mention, uh, you know, Larry takes care of the Facebook page, right? Right. Yes. And so you can always get at the latest there as well. And now before we get to Larry's song selection, if you have any comments, any suggestions for topics, any feedback at all about this program, Give us a call. Leave us a message. 412-326-9435. 412-326-9435. That number down in the episode description as well. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Also, feel free to give us an email. Uh, bhfpodcast.nathan at gmail.com. Send me an email. Let us know what you think. If you have somebody you think we should be featured on the program, point, point us to them and uh, let us know about that. Also, you can always find our latest episodes as well as past episodes out at the podcast website, essentialworkpodcast.org. Also head out to 
Apple Podcasts, if you would like us there, write us a review that helps other people know about us. Also, a couple more thanks going out to, uh, we can always count on extra assistance from Angela Bachman at thatsoundgirl.com for production assistance with this program. Also, our logo comes to us from Brittany Sheets, her website, bsheetscreative.com. And our theme song is original from Jason Kendall, jasonkendallproductions.com is his website. So now without further ado, let's get into it. So Larry's great at picking out a song that just perfectly goes with the theme of our episodes and our feature interview this past one, which we just heard from the Restaurant Opportunity Centers. We heard the stories of servers and Larry has found a song for us that really talks about those issues as well. Well, in the popular music field, of course, restaurants and diners and bars, even lemonade stands have appeared, but usually it's a background or the people that work in the venues just flash by into lyrics for a quick moment. And sure. we, don't, we don't really get to know much about them or what might be on their mind. So this song, which is titled Compliments of Your Waitress, is interesting because it's written completely from the first person viewpoint of an actual waitress. And I just give a, a little bit of lyric. The day drags on and stumbles. I'm far too tired to smile. From the kitchen to the tables, I must have walked a thousand miles. You know, that's that's right there. <laughs> I think anybody who's been in, in the, the waiting trade can feel that way. And Absolutely. If you've been a server, you can relate to that. That's and that's what's great about this song. Compliments Your Waitress. It was recorded in 2008 by an English band called Chumbawamba. They formed in 1982 and played in various forms until 2012. The band was constantly shifting in musical style. They crossed in and out of punk, pop, folk, and I guess genres don't even really have a, a distinct name. And <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And kind of created their own. And along with standard rock guitars and drums, you could hear them playing acoustic instruments like concertina, trumpet, recorder, banjo. A lot of them are really eclectic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They really let their vision flow. A lot of the songs are about workers and working, and they manifest an irreverent attitude toward authority. They wrote about animal rights, pacifism, class struggle, feminism, gay liberation, anti-fascism. They were really involved in what was happening around society and, and how to use music to talk about that. And we have information about this song and the performers on EssentialWorkPodcast.com. Excellent. And for those who the name Chumbawamba rings a bell, their biggest hit song was in the late 90s, Tub Thumping, mm -hmm. which... Generally, people know by the main chorus lyric there, you know, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down, right? This song coming up is a bit different in terms of its musical uh, origins and sound as compared to what we may be familiar with with these guys, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Jude Abbott does the vocals and it's a very soft, it's almost kind of like a, a 1960s sort of English folk kind of presentation, but it's really poignant and it just puts you right there. Compliments of your waitress. The pretty young couple in the corner much too much to say They don't like a thing that I bring them And they send it all away They look 
2021 has been a year of transition for all of us. At the Battle of Homestead Foundation, they have discovered new ways to advance their mission of heritage, education, and social action. They expanded their educational outreach to include a weekly online tour of people's history locations through the Charlie's Monday Marker video series, as well as far-reaching discussion of social and economic trends with the podcast Essential Work, the Past, Present, and Future of Jobs. They presented seven timely online public panels featuring nationally known authors and historians. Topics included workforce shifts from heavy industry to healthcare, the women's suffrage movement, uprooted immigrant neighborhoods, protest songs, and today's civil action movements, the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain, historical roots of today's social philanthropy, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's world-famous City Steps. They established a professionally archived labor history collection, thousands of documents, photos, recordings, and remembrances of labor history spanning decades. They co-sponsored the Blair Mountain Centennial in West Virginia, honoring a long-neglected part of U.S. history with a landmark Labor Day weekend of events. They built a new and more accessible website, which you should check out at battleofhomestead.org. They did all this with help, the essential support of all the individuals like you who enjoyed the programming, appreciate the hard work of the citizens, workers, educators, and historians that make it happen, and value their mission to preserve, interpret, and promote a people's history focused on the significance of the dramatic labor conflict at Homestead, Pennsylvania in 1892. In 2022, they'll present a new round of thought-provoking programming. Membership, along with special donations, is essential to their success. Annual membership is only $30, $20 for retirees or the underemployed, and just $10 for students. Join now at battleofhomestead.org. You can also choose to contribute at any of a number of special donor levels, and donations are tax-deductible. Membership also provides multiple free admissions to a variety of historical museums and sites in the greater Pittsburgh area. Check out the details at battleofhomestead.org. As this singular year comes to a close, while we still may have much to be thankful for, we also all see the urgent necessity of doing more to share our progressive labor history to a wider audience and inspire a new generation of activists and organizers. Your membership and engagement ensures that the Battle of Homestead Foundation will continue to do just that. Show your support today at battleofhomestead.org. In solidarity, BHF thanks you and wishes you good health, positive spirits, and both peaceful and joyous days ahead.